It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today... We analyze and discuss the latest updates from the front lines of the war in Ukraine. I speak to Ukrainian human rights lawyer Alexandra Matvyuchuk on Russian war crimes and human rights violations. But we start with turmoil in the United Kingdom as Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigns from the leadership of the Conservative Party. We analyze what this means for Britain's support for Ukraine and we give some context and some thoughts to our international listeners as to what the future of British foreign policy towards Ukraine may look like. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and updates on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 7th of July, day 134. And today I'm joined by The Telegraph's Defence and Security Editor, Dominic Nichols, and Assistant Comment Editor, Francis Sternley. In a change of schedule for this podcast, we start by discussing the resignation of British PM Boris Johnson. Yes, well, thank you, David. Um, a pretty extraordinary morning here in the newsroom in London. Uh, Boris Johnson has uh, just finished speaking outside Downing Street within the past hour and has resigned as leader of the Conservative Party and has told the country that he will step down as Prime Minister later this year. Um, as you say, this is not completely unexpected given the events of recent days, weeks, one could even argue months, but it still comes, I think, as a, uh, as a shock nonetheless, just given the extent of his majority in Parliament that he achieved in December 2019 over an 80-seat majority, and of course, given his leadership on Ukraine, uh, which has of course been applauded not only by President Zelensky, but but around the world. Uh, but clearly, um, the, the, we will soon have a new Prime Minister. The, the timing on this is uncertain. There are many MPs who are calling upon him to resign immediately as Prime Minister and for an interim caretaker Prime Minister to take over um, before a leadership contest that would confirm a, 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 a new Prime Minister with not only the Conservative MPs, but also with um, Conservative Party members. But um, Clearly, that is not Boris Johnson's intention. So we will just have to watch this space and 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 see what coming happens in the coming coming hours. Um, uh, because, as I say, things are very very fast moving at the present. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Can we talk a little bit before we talk about the future? Can we just review um, Boris Johnson's uh, conduct in 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 the invasion of Ukraine? Um, he he. 
he spoke himself in his re- in his resignation speech, if we can call it that, about leading the West. Is, is that a fair assessment? Well, it will be for historians to judge, I think. But certainly it's fair to say that he sensed quicker than most the existential significance of the invasion of Ukraine for Europe and for the wider world. He was one of the most proactive leaders in sending military hardware to Ukraine. Uh, Many listeners will, of course, recall when there were discussions around Germany sending 5,000 helmets. And and at that same time, Britain was providing weapons and a much more vocal criticism of what was taking place in Ukraine. So I think it is fair to say that he has been one of the um, most vocal um, leaders on the world stage in advocating for Ukraine's cause. Um, and indeed, he's been obviously to Kiev twice, um, met President Zelensky twice. We understand that he's very much in regular contact with him um, via WhatsApp, or it's perhaps more of secure equivalents. Um, and uh, he has obviously been, in terms of the military spending that we have sent to Ukraine, it's second only to the United States. So, if the United States, so if one is only measuring it on that metric, then you could say that certainly Britain has been um, one of its most erstwhile supporters. And Francis, may I just jump in there? Hi, hi everyone. Dom here. Um, I know it's all a bit higgledy piggledy today, so apologies for that. But I know you've got to dash off quickly, Francis, with the breaking news. But just before you go, uh, I mean, I can talk in a moment about what this might mean for Britain's continued support for Ukraine and Ben Wallace's defence secretary and whether or not he may survive in post. But just in terms of where we are in national leadership. So this brings a a general election a little bit um a, 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 the odds are a little bit more, a little bit, a little more likely. There's a, a general election. Let's let's suggest, um, and there's a chance, obviously, that Labour Labour could get in. And the current Labour leadership team have been have been quite, uh, quite close to the government in terms of defence and Ukraine specifically. But there is a very large wing of the Labour Party who are still anti-NATO and anti-the war. And I just wonder if you were able to give any kind of comment on on what you think the chances of that that side of of the Labour movement in this country being able to exert influence over the leadership if it were to win any general election that I'm not suggesting is around the corner at all but but you know if it were to happen is that still a prevalent wing of the Labour Party and still a feature in our politics? Well I think um, the first thing to say and to your to your point that you just made there is I don't think a general election is around the corner I think that it will now be in the interests of the Conservative Party to um, allow a new leader to to bed in to restore trust with the public, if that's possible, um, and to try and establish a new policy model um, for for the remainder of of the time in office. Of course, it was we're un- in unusual territory here because usually when a prime minister is is ousted, it's because they have a very narrow majority in the House of Commons. That is still not the case, despite several by-election disasters for Boris Johnson. That's still not the case for him. There's still a sizable majority for the Conservative Party. So I think that 
um, we will still be expecting a, a, a general election in 2024. Indeed, it could even go into 2025, which I think is unlikely, but it would technically be, be able to go on for that long, um, which obviously, you know, this is still a long time and, and, and given the, the, the situation in Ukraine. But of course, the, the war in Ukraine could go on for a very long time. And so I think it's absolutely right to be thinking about the potential implications of, of, a, of, a, of a later of a Labour um, uh, win um, in, 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 in the long term. Um, I think it is fair to say your point that there is a large wing of um, uh, Keir Starmer's Labour Party that that is not um, uh, supportive of NATO, is more perhaps sympathetic to uh, to the sort of Russian line, perhaps partly for nostalgic reasons from, you know, it used to be the old bastion of, 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 of Marxism and socialism in Europe. And, and I think there is still an element of that within, within certain wings of the Labour Party. Um, but certainly you're right to say that Keir Starmer has been broadly in, in, in alignment with Boris Johnson in terms of his support of Ukraine. But, you know, these matters are sheared, are shaped profoundly by uh, what kind of majority any leader can score in an election. I think it, if we were to have a general election tomorrow, it would almost certainly lead to some kind of hung parliament that would require a coalition of sorts. If Labour Party were the party that were in the position to have said uh, uh, to be forming a, a a government of some kind, albeit a minority one, then of course the the people in the party who are more critical of NATO would have significant influence um, because they would be able to effectively steer elements of of policy. But this is a lot of hypothetical here, and I don't want listeners to think that this is actually something that could happen in in the short term. But I think it's certainly fair to say that 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 is a a possibility. And I know you'll touch on this more, Dom, because you, certainly you know. Um, um, ben Wallace far far better than I do, but uh, but I think um, that whatever happens now in the coming days, weeks, months, I think that the British government's stance, as defined and shaped by Boris Johnson in those early weeks of the war, will continue. Um, I think that regardless of, uh, I mean, I think there's a, the high chance that Ben Wallace will, will remain in office as Defence Secretary, assuming he doesn't run for the leadership. Um, uh, will remain in office there. Obviously, Liz Truss is still currently the uh, foreign office in the foreign office. But I think, as I say, that, that broadly speaking, the the Conservative Party is absolutely united on this issue about the um, importance that needs to be provided to to the Ukrainian state, and it would not be in the interest of any leadership contender to to try and. Um, have a sort of weaker line on that because it is one of the very few policies that the government is able to be consistent on and has had has has had universal support from from not only within its party rank and file but also broadly I would say probably across the country as well and and in wider in Europe. So um, yes, I think uh, it's certainly important now to be talking about what would happen in a general election scenario. Certainly in talk, important to be talking about how um, different leaders may shape the Ukraine conflict. But in terms of the overall policy that I think is going to be shaping um, uh, what happens in, in Ukraine as shaped by this British government, I don't expect there to be a profound change. Very, very quickly from me, because the, the, the reason, just to explain to listeners as well, the reason we've gone first with this with this item of, of news, you know, usually we do start with the updates from the front lines, because that's that's what's important, that's on the ground. Um, but we are a British newspaper, we can give insight, I think, into this um, that others may, may, may not be able to. Um, and this is such an important issue for, for Ukrainians. Just, just for our Ukrainian and potentially some of our listeners from around the world as well, can you just sketch very quickly, how did this happen? Because I think, I think looking at Ukrainian news, it wasn't necessarily expected. This is, this, this is a bit of a shock. 
Yes, well, I mean, it's more it's more of a death by a thousand cuts than it is from any one incident being the defining cause for Boris Johnson's demise. I mean, obviously, historians will be debating this for for many months, years, decades to come. What led to Boris's um, uh, ultimate fall? Um, but I think that the, the fundamental issue is a a, a lack of um, coherence in government ideologically. What for first of all, this has been a huge cause of 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 consternation in 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 the Conservative Party um, that he has backpedalled on certain policy announcements, um, certain things that Tories are not meant to do, such as tax rises. He of course has done. There was question marks over his leadership during the lockdowns, feelings that he should have been more critical of the scientific evidence that was given to him that, that may well have suggested that he was shouldn't have locked down for as long or indeed locked down at all. So his judgment was questioned there. Um, feelings of uh, um, uh, his support on sort of things like net zero, this is extre- extremely expensive and arguably led to um, energy security issues. So there's this ideological element to all of this. But I think the, the, the biggest issue, as I say, is around judgment and trust in his leadership um, based on the, the just litany of, 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 of scandals and unforced errors that we've seen in, in the last few weeks. Um, it all really started going wrong with um, a, an MP who he tried to defend um uh that was really indefensible several months ago that lead to one led to one of his first by-election defeats um then of course we had the party gate scandal which for the for the sake of international listeners it was effectively um he he was uh, fined by the police for there being a, a social event in Downing Street during the lockdown, which broke the law that he, of course, had imposed on the rest of the country. And then there has been a similar um, series of scandals which ministers have been asked to defend, um, saying that, you know, the prime minister was not aware of this, that and the other. Um, and then actually it's proven that he was aware of those things, the most recently being a, around an MP called Chris Pincher. And and this was really the last straw. Um, and it's just been felt that his judgment can no longer be trusted both ideologically and one could say, I suppose, uh, morally. And the Conservative Party being the sort of ruthless election winning machine that it is, it often sees itself as the default party of government, has has decided that enough is enough. And so he it has cost him his job, despite um, his successes, I think, on Ukraine, which probably history will 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 be quite kind kind um, uh, for him. Thank you very much, Francis, for that. That was extremely comprehensive, and I and I hope useful for our Ukrainian and and everyone else and all of all of our listeners who are potentially just waking up to see to see what's happened in the UK today. Just to explain again, that's why that's why we've talked about this a lot at the beginning of this podcast. We don't usually do that, um, but we, it feels like an important thing to mention and explore. Um, Francis, I realise you have to go. So, Dom Nichols, I'll turn to you. What does this mean for the United Kingdom's policy on Ukraine? Well, as Francis was saying, in the in the short, possibly the medium term, absolutely nothing. There's there's no suggestion from any quarter that the the issues which is which have driven 
Boris Johnson from office are going to are going to blur into uh, Britain's position on Ukraine right now. So stand fast that the, the conversation we just had about any potential future uh, other, other government and, and so on and so forth. That is far down the line. That was that was sort of speculation and, and, and sort of political chit chat. I mean, there is there is n- nobody is, is today and, and in the run up to this through any of the scandals, nobody has suggested any of it is um, is indicative of of support or, 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 or waning support for Britain's firm policy on Ukraine. Um, I um, have spoken to John Healy, the Shadow Defence Secretary, and um, and he's very very firm. He and he and Boris Johnson, uh, sorry, he and uh, Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, meet regularly. Ben, ben Wallace has actually been he, he's been very keen to to get that broad support across the political divide in uh, Westminster so not just with the Labour Party but also the Scottish Nationalist Party and and others he's he's briefed them he's um well I, I suppose to be generous I think he's you know tried to sort their opinion whether or not he's he sort of listened to it, but he's certainly given them given them a voice and has gone out of his way to to, to get that sort of broad uh, view from UK. and And no one no one's come out and and uh, been wildly different from the government position. So I don't I don't see any difference today in in any of the major parties or in any parties at all in in UK politics. I've not had any expressions to me from anyone of um, of political standing at any level that suggests that Britain's Policy towards Ukraine should be any different. If anything, I mean, all, all the comment is we should go, go further, faster, um, and encourage allies and partners to do the same. So I don't think there'll be any any impact at all today um, on uh, on Britain's policy to Ukraine. Thank you very much, Tom, for that. Um, is there anything left to say on this, or shall we move to updates from the front line? Well, I mean, you mentioned earlier on, just very quickly, you mentioned earlier on that Ben Wallace, as a as a very senior cabinet member, um, he he's a He's one of the big beasts still left in the room, uh, along with uh, Foreign Secretary. I'd suggest that you know they haven't they haven't resigned. And, and Ben Wallace actually tweeted this morning saying that um, uh, saying now's the time that the, the, the affairs of state, when it comes to national security, have to keep going. Um, he, he said in that tweet this morning he would he would leave any change of leadership up to the the mechanisms in process and and recommended his colleagues to to use those mechanisms. So so I think about as close as he could get to saying, yep, I think it's I think time's up. Prime Minister, I think you should, uh, you know, do the decent thing in the in the library with the uh, with the brandy bowl and the mess Webley. But he didn't actually call for his call for his resignation. But it was it was yeah, fairly fairly close to that. But was making the point that the affairs of state and when it comes uh, and national security have to keep going. And he said he he intended he intends to keep going. Um, that is not to say that he won't in the future lob his hat in the ring. He has repeatedly denied any any great ambition uh, for. The, the prime minister's office um however you don't have to be a great great student of politics to know that that's uh that's by no means a you know a firm and unwavering position that's never going to change um i mean he is clear he has been clear that that he feels that this is the right place for for him and the right time he is uh as, as you may have mentioned in one or two speeches you might have picked up that he he had been a soldier in his youth um, you, you might, might have missed that, but look closely, and he mentions it every every three or four sentences. Um, so he, he understands; he has a, an understanding of the military. He knows, I think, pretty much every every defence minister in Europe by first name and has history with them. Um, so he's he's in the right place to to rally the European cause to Ukraine. 
I think he feels that this is this is the moment for the grown-ups to step forward, and he counts himself in that in that number. So I think he does feel like he can he can add to the national and and international history right now by being where he is. Um, so of course, I, I'm not part of his team. I've absolutely no idea what his what his inner motivations are. He could he could seek uh, seek leadership, but I think right now he he feels that that, that now's the time for for him to sort of stay stay where he is. And just to note that that Boris Johnson, this this could change, of course. But Boris Johnson said as part of his his leaving speech that he will stay in post until probably until the uh, Tory Party conference in October. So he's not leaving now. There's not the the Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab stepping up to be the PM. He's not immediately launched a uh, a leadership process. So he so he is probably going to be there for for a little while yet. So even if Ben Wallace has has political ambition for the Prime Minister's office, it's, it's going to be some time before. Before he bungs his hat in the ring, and and then sometime before he, he he's out of office, if that were ever to ever to happen, um, he he has got broad support in the in the party. Um, I'm not so sure if there are not others who have broad support amongst the uh, the Tory party membership out in the in the country, and they in in the weird sort of UK way of doing these things, it's those party members who who um, get the ultimate vote on who the leader is and again in our, in our strange system it's the leader of the party who makes the, who is the prime minister so we don't we don't elect the prime minister directly so um he does have broad support ben wallace he he could well leave, seek to leverage that but again i'm just i am speculating on just what i what i know of him and his and the political statements he's made in the past i don't see him going anywhere in the in the near future at all, so I don't think there's any any change in direction one one jot from Britain's policy at the moment. Thanks, Tom. That's inc- incredibly useful, and maybe just important to say to our to our listeners that from our position, that looks like that's going to be the next big fight in British politics. About is is going to be when exactly Boris Johnson uh, stops being PM. He obviously wants to stretch it out as long as possible, but there are many other people who do not want that. So hopefully, all of that is very useful to our listeners in Ukraine and and elsewhere, just to give you a bit of a sense of the background of what's happening, why it's happening, and what that means for Britain's support for, to Ukraine in the war. Can we turn to Ukraine now, Dom? What's what's been happening in the last 24 hours on the ground on the front lines well somewhat bizarrely just as things are all, all exploding over here um it, it has for the first time in, in the war russia have said that they've not made any tor- uh, not tried to and not made any territorial gains in the country they have continued to fire heavy artillery and missiles there have been a number of strikes in kramatorsk and, and elsewhere um civilians have been killed in the last 24 hours but there have been no efforts to take uh, ground now that might be because, as we've suggested many, many times on this, uh, in recent days on this pod, the um, Russian forces do need to rest, as do the Ukrainians. We're not trying to say it's all one-sided. Both sides are exhausted. They've been they've lost a huge number of fighters and materiel. Uh, we've seen old tanks, T-62s, brought into service from Russia, so we know they are struggling for for uh, tanks. We think they're also very much struggling for armoured vehicles. We've seen them get BMP-1 out of the uh, out of the closet as well and there have been in recent weeks far fewer casualty reports which are always always got to say with a pinch of salt admittedly but we think far fewer um, people being killed and we think that that's partly ascribed to there just being fewer armored vehicles you know if you haven't got any btr-80s with with six or eight blokes in the back you know being wiped out then you're not losing six or eight blokes at a time um, and we think that's the case because for, for far fewer casualties, Russia hasn't made those the advances you would expect a a a, a, uh, a successful military to make. So we think there are 
that, that both sides are massively depleted in terms of personnel and equipment. So they both need to reconstitute, which is to to fix um, your, your broken people and your, your broken vehicles, to, to call up other reserves of, of both natures again, and also to, to reorganise yourself to if you need to, if you need to make your structures, your, your, form, your formal military structures, if you need to change them around a bit and say, well, we need some more engineers in this brigade or we need far fewer um, infantry and we need some more electronic warfare or we need, not, need more air defence. So to actually sort of re, reorder how the, the shape of the military is before the next push, that all takes time. And that might be why... Uh, the Russian forces have paused here. Another exa- another reason they've paused might be that the strikes in the last oof, eight, ten days that we've seen, which which we think are down to some of the, the high miles that have been going in from the US or the other um, heavy self-propelled 155 mil artillery, the, the French Caesars and the, um, uh, the, the P2000s from, from Germany and elsewhere, uh, as well as British MLRS and, and German MLRS um, and, and others. I don't, don't seek to provide a comprehensive list here. Um, there have been a number of Russian ammunition dumps that have suddenly gone up in smoke, a number of headquarters, Russian headquarters that have gone up in smoke. So we think that possibly this is the start of the effect of this of this heavy artillery flowing in uh, to Ukraine. Um, so this is going to be an interesting point. Russia's now at the point where it really does need to rest and sort of recock for the next for the next push. But it it needs to get moving before more of these heavy weapons flow in. Uh, and it's increasingly used up its precision guided munitions stock, so it's it's less able to uh, to destroy these natures of ammunition or natures of equipment themselves so this this pause would probably if there is a pause would would probably uh, focus more or benefit more ukraine obviously ukraine wants to advance itself wants to take back the territory it's lost but that is not such an imperative as as advancing is for russia so this this pause i think although russia say that they they haven't described it as a tactical pause but they they said it's um they've described it as a as a sort of necessary to 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 get ready to go again or I can't remember the exact the exact phrase that came out of the Kremlin but essentially they're saying they're taking a pause um, I think that's probably been more forced upon them than they've uh, elected to do uh, and it'll be interesting to see for how long that lasts um, also just to, just of note there's been more more equipment failures from Russia we've seen we saw a lot of um, we saw some of their their missiles going rogue um, recently uh, in Belgorod which is about 60 miles um, inside Russia north of North of uh, Kharkiv, uh, we saw a number of uh, anti-air missiles fail. Um, they, they, I don't know what they were firing at over Belgorod, um, but they, but a number of them just did not work and, and returned to sender and exploded back on the ground. So, you know, whether that's old kit or it's um, it's it's part of this alleged you know, supposed uh, corruption where things have been sold off and it's just the kit is just not it not in good repair. Uh, we don't know, but there's a number of equipment failures still continuing. Uh, so yeah, so the big news is operational pause from russia and they are going back to uh, what they know what what they only seem to be able to know best which is to fling heavy metal around the place with missiles and and artillery and and cause yet more civilian destruction which i think we should expect for the next few days thank you very much tom that was um incredibly comprehensive and really as you were talking you were sort of asking the questions i was posing in my mind before before i got the chance to ask them um just i guess one question from me is i mean you've talked about this phrase to culminate in a military sense, from uh, for, for many many weeks now, we've been sort of waiting for the moment when the Russian forces do this. I mean, do you think? Do you think if if they are going to culminate, is is this the moment they do that? Yes, I think it is. So, um, just to 
refresh. So a culmination point is where you you're not on the back foot. You're not pushed back, but you are exhausted, so you can't take any further offensive action. So you can hold the line you've got and start repairing your your people and, and equipment in place. You're not being pushed backwards, but you're just not able to go forwards anymore. And that's um, where I think Russia is at the moment in this in this effort, which is quite extraordinary if you think about it. If they've had to strip out a lot of their better fighters and equipment from the northern flank ranked. Uh, 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 Kharkiv and the south around Kherson if they've had to pull some equipment out of there to to push for this really quite small bit of real estate in the east of the Donbass and that has brought the Russian juggernaut to, to a shuddering halt um, I think that is quite extraordinary but yeah I do think we've we've witnessed Russia culminating here I mean they've taken the Luhansk Oblast which is the northern region of of the Donbass but there's still a huge amount of the Donetsk Oblast to the south in Ukrainian hands. So it's still nowhere near uh, able for, for Putin to say that he has, as is his much vaunted cry, he's going to liberate the Donbass. They're nowhere near that yet. They um, they made uh, a bit of play of, of, of claiming the victory in, in Luhansk. Um, the terrain, to a certain degree, does lend itself to uh, culminating here. They, they took uh, Severodonetsk and then managed to get up the hill, across the river and up the hill to take Lysychansk. It was partly their their grinding attritional method of yeah, very heavy artillery led and then and then following up behind with infantry and tanks it was also partly because ukraine ceded that territory they, they pulled back they went to the west of lisichansk and they're forming um a harder line to the west around krematorsk and slovyansk and these areas which have been they've had longer to prepare so i think a bit of a bit of both so i i think it it does suit russia now to pause and i but i think it also the bigger part of that sentence is that they've it's had they've had this forced upon them. They they have to pause. They have culminated um, more out of a necessity than uh, than choice, uh, and it should take a few weeks to get going again. I mean, they're, they're in the same area. It's not like when they were pushed out of the north of the country and they had to physically move through Belarus and through Russia to come round to the east. They haven't got to move that far. They're still in the same in the same piece of real estate, but they've just they've broken too many people and too much equipment. So they just need to to really regenerate those those forces. And that and that will take weeks, or it should take weeks. If there is political imperative for Moscow to keep going west, just keep pushing it, no matter what the cost. And I think we've seen that that is the the sort of that's where Putin's sort of moral um, compass lies. So I wouldn't be surprised if they keep trying to push forward, you know, grinding away at just a few metres, a few hundred metres a day. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see that, but I, I think they are they are now desperate for a, for a break. And uh, as I say, the geography would lend itself to that. Just very quickly, just if, as you said, the political imperative to carry on regardless of cost, if that is the decision, is that not a huge risk for, for the Russian armed forces, that, 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 that they're sending, be sending exhausted men, exhausted equipment into battle um, against the Ukrainian army that, although exhausted itself, is increasingly better armed? Um, what what could, 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 I mean? What would be the, the military impact of doing something like that? Well, it, it is it is attrition, and it it would it would mean the casualty count is far higher. Um, but Russia could well gamble that they are better to push on now with weakened and depleted forces against themselves. Ukraine are weakened and depleted forces. Better to push on now than wait and allow larger heavier weapons to flow in from the west in greater quantities so it, it's all a gamble we've, we've said right from the start of this pod this is a gamble between how long ukraine can hold on for as they are backfilled um 
compared to how long Russia can keep going. And, and that and that those overarching ideas are, are brought into sharp focus here right now in the uh, in the east of the Donbass. This is this is this is exactly what what is playing out. It should should Russia keep going, keep forcing um, largely ill-equipped and ill-prepared, ill-trained, well, poorly trained soldiers because the best ones are are either exhausted or or no longer there, um, dead or injured. Do they just keep going, or do they do they accept that they need time to train and get get the numbers back in? Um, but every day allows Western forces to uh, to supply Ukraine even more training and equipment. Well, thank you very much, Tom Nichols, for that. Um, as listeners can imagine, uh, as you, and as you know, we are a British newspaper, so the newsroom today is is rather hectic with news of Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister's resignation as leader of the Conservative Party, and the ensuing battles over his timetable for departure. Uh, we've covered that. If you've just joined us, we've covered talking about his resignation and what that means for uh, Britain's support for Ukraine in the much earlier part of this Twitter space and podcast. So if you haven't heard that, do go back to the beginning and, and listen there. We have Francis Sternley from the comment team talking us through that. So that's incredibly useful. We've probably run out of time for today, I'm afraid. So, Dom Nichols, I'll just ask, what should um, our listeners look for and be, pay, be paying attention to in the next few days and over the weekend? Well, by far the most important is the Ukraine war and in particular the, the issues we've just been talking about in the in the Donbass to see whether or not there is this, this pause does continue or whether or not, for the reasons I've just outlined, it, the, the fighting uh, carries on with all the attendant sort of advantages and disadvantages for both sides. Um I would keep an eye. It's it's a little bit um, uh, self congratulatory, but uh, just do keep an eye on, on the words that are said over here. Uh, Boris Johnson might want to hang on until until October before he hands over, but but as we've seen in the last forty eight hours, your political events are just running away with us over here. So there could be some big changes, but um, but don't worry, we'll we'll bring all those to you. On Tuesday night, I went to the Ukraine Institute in London to listen to human rights lawyer Alexandra Mitvichuk speak on human rights violations and war crimes in Russia's invasion of her country. After her talk, she was kind enough to answer a few questions for this podcast. Huge thanks to Alexandra and the Ukraine Institute for their help and their time. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you very much, Alexandra, for your time. Um, could you tell us just briefly a bit about yourself and what have you been doing the last eight years in your career? My name is Alexandra Matvichuk. I am a human rights lawyer, head of Center for Civil Liberties. I spent 20 years uh, protecting human rights in Ukraine and OEC region, and eight of these years I have been documenting war crimes in a war which Russia started against Ukraine in 2040. Tonight you spoke about the um, scale of the crimes in the, in the current invasion from February. Can you give our listeners... Some, an idea of some of the stories you're hearing from the people you're talking to? It's very difficult stories, and there are a lot of them. We hear the stories of people who witness how Russian tanks have fun firing on people on bicycle on the streets, and uh, we recorded uh, testimonies of people whose uh, 14 years old boy were shot close range when he played with the ball in the yard. We uh, recorded the stories of people who were forced to go to the basement and then uh, they were ordered to elected uh, eight volunteers and then Russians killed these eight volunteers. So 
It's a very horrible story, and I must admit that we recorded human pain. You spoke tonight about the, some of the difficulties that lawyers, especially lawyers trying to prosecute war, war crimes, the difficulties they face. Could you give us a sense of what they are? What are those difficulties you face? Oh, there are several we recorded uh, different kinds of offenses like murder, torture, rape, uh, abduction, etc. And it's very difficult to investigate uh, the cases when you have not one but dozens of thousands. Uh, second uh, obstacle is that before this large-scale invasion, we have only 7% of Ukrainian territory under Russian occupation. I mean Crimea and part of Donbas. But now more than 20% of Ukrainian territories are under Russian occupation, and we have no physical access to the territories and we so see only the top of iceberg, what's going on there. Third, that we are in a hot stage of the war, and there is a zone of hostilities where the battles are going on. It's impossible uh, to work here with a human rights purpose. It's impossible to conduct investigation in this area. And that's why we, there are a lot of uh, barriers for investigation and to bring perpetrator to justice. We've heard a lot about deportations from um, occupied Ukraine to, to Russia. Could you just comment on that? What, what do we know? What's, what's the scale of this and what is happening to people? Uh, we don't know concrete number. Russia officially declared that approximately 2 million people were forcibly deported. Why we call this forcible deportation, it's very important to understand from the legal point of view. It doesn't mean that all these people were like uh, ties and uh, physically transferred to Russian territory. It means that these people have no chance, no option to decide, because f uh, Russians use a tactics very cruel tactics, how they occupied uh, cities. They circle cities and don't allow people for peaceful evacuation. And they do it for purpose because they ruined critical infrastructure, they ruined residential buildings, they forced people to live in basement for weeks without food, water, medical care. They don't allow humanitarian assistance to reach the city. They shelled on any attempts of evacuation in order to prevent Ukrainian defenders to concentrate on their main role to defend the city. Because Ukrainian defenders have to deal with a lot of logistical issues. How to provide water for civilians? How to organize evacuation of civilians under Russian fire? How to help injured people? And then, when Russian appeared in cities, and they don't need these people and this pain anymore, they told, okay, you have a choice, either to stay here and die, or to go to Russia, there is no choice. You spoke a bit about the what you see as the limitations of the international system, because I think lots of listeners will will see the crimes and see what's going on and want justice for the people that, that have done them, want justice for the people who've suffered. Um, in your view, why is that difficult? What are the limitations for the international um, systems we have in place at the moment? We have a very visible accountability gap, uh, because... Um, International Criminal Court, who started investigation from the March this year, they uh, will select it only several cases for investigation. This means that dozens of thousands of other cases will remain the responsibility of national system of Ukraine. But, sorry, 
even the most effective national system in the world are not capable to proceed such a huge amount of crime. In beginning of June this year, General Prosecutor of Ukraine told that they officially opening more than 15,000 of criminal proceedings. For that moment, it means that each prosecutor have parallel investigate more than 200 cases. It's like write in parallel 200 books. <laughs> so there is a lack of instrument who can provide effective investigation and justice in such circumstances. And we need the constant in, in international involvement on the level of national investigation and national justice. And this can be realized in a model of international hybrid tribunal. International hybrid tribunal can combine efforts of national investigators, national judges and international judges. They can provide hope for justice for people who suffered from war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. What, um, for everybody listening who wants to do something, but we have listeners, we have hundreds of thousands in the US, in New Zealand, in Australia, from pe people very, very far away, what, what can they do to help? I spent several months in Kiev and one month and a half in situation when Russian troops circled Kiev and we have no idea what will be with us, not even the next several days, but even next several hours. And then I start to go to Norway, to um, United States of America, to uh, France, uh, to Belgium, to now I'm in Great Britain. I uh, met with uh, politicians, with diplomats, with uh, representatives of international organizations. And I hear about demand to peace, but I don't hear the, about demand of justice. And justice issue is not on the table. So what ordinary people in different countries can do, they can become an ambassadors of idea for justice. The justice matter, that there is no sustainable peace without justice, and promote this idea in their countries. And just finally, um, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important to mention or, you, or you'd like to say? I will remind that Russian troops committed war crimes not only in Ukraine. They, for decades, committed war crimes, for example, in Chechnya, in Moldova, in Georgia, in Syria, in Mali, in Libya, and for decades they enjoyed impunity. And all the situation is possible because the Russian troops were not punished for the atrocities that they committed in other countries. They haven't been punished even for using chemical weapons against civilians in Syria. So this is a circle of impunity which encouraged Putin for a new and new act of violence. And the truth is that we will not be able to stop Putin in Ukraine. He will go further. So not only for Ukrainian people, but for the people in other countries we have first to stop Putin and to repeal Putin troops from Ukraine, and second, to establish international hybrid tribunal on war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, and to break the circle of unity which Russians enjoy for decades. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio.
You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe.